Well, we continue in our study of the book of Hebrews, and we come to uh, chapter 11. And if you remember chapter 11, we've seen a transition begin to take place. Um, in all the chapters leading up to chapter 11, the author of Hebrews has been very theological, a lot of doctrine, just really understanding who is Jesus, what is the significance of what he's done. And the way he's done that is he's had his Old Testament, which was the Hebrew Bible, which is the same as your Old Testament. He had his Hebrew Bible open, and he's looking at all that went on in the Old Covenant that God made with Israel. And he's been explaining to us how all those different aspects pointed to the coming of Christ. That the, the priest pointed to Jesus, who is the great high priest, who offers sacrifice to God on behalf of man. The sacrifices of the animals that the priest offered was to point us to Jesus who gave his own life as the unblemished lamb of God, our sacrifice for sins. Um, Over and over and over, he kept theology and doctrine teaching us the meaning and significance of Jesus Christ and how he grants us access to the holy place, to intimacy with God through the blood of Jesus Christ because that's the only way to be made approved and acceptable and righteous in God's eyes through the blood of Christ. And then when he... Uh, got to the end of chapter 10 and now into 11, he's getting much more practical and he's saying, he's answering the so what. He's getting into the, the implications of that doctrine. That theology is not just meant to us, to puff us up and make us think we're smart and we know more than someone else. It's meant to transform us and to affect the way we live and the way we think and to affect our priorities, our use of resources. Uh, the way we live at work, the way we play sport on the field, the way we interact with family members, it changes who we are if we will take it to heart and apply it. And so that's where he has been. And so as we come to chapter 11, uh, David Ham last week did a great job of helping us understand the the meaning of faith. We saw in Hebrews 11.1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Isn't that interesting what we see? The, the crux of the Christian life, it's dealing with things you can't see, things you can't touch, you, things you can't feel, smell, hear. It's unseen realities that we would know nothing about had God not revealed it to us through his scriptures. We participate in this whole other reality that is available to us, we participate in that by faith. And he says, by becoming convinced that it's true, that it's real, that the God who revealed it and says these things about himself and about his son is true and trustworthy and faithful. And if we don't believe it, then we're not going to enjoy and participate in it. And so he says, faith is being certain, being convinced of the reality, the truthfulness, and the trustworthiness of God in all that he has revealed about these unseen realities. And so what Ham worked through the promises in Hebrews, what has God revealed? What unseen realities has God revealed in his word? Well, he, what we'll see in just a minute as we work through Genesis, because the author of Hebrews 11.4 leads us back to Genesis by talking about Abel. What we're going to see is that God is about restoring and reconciling this, all the people and this earth to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. He's told us the blood of Jesus makes us right with God 
so that we can worship him. And so we're going to see that to participate in that, we've got to believe it. We've got to, got to consider it true. And we've got to see that we've got to believe by faith that God is trustworthy. That he tells the truth, he does what he says, and he keeps his promises. He promised to make you righteous by his son's blood. Do you believe that? If so, then it'll change the way you live. And that's what he's doing in Hebrews chapter 11 and the following verses. He's going to give us example after example of, a, of people, regular, individual, messed up people with hang-ups and flaws. They're not superhuman people in chapter 11. They're normal, messed up, jacked up people just like us. They think they look bad. They think their personality's not good. They think they're not good enough to do what God's called them to do. They are filled and riddled with doubts and concerns. And yet God does amazing things with them because they're convinced that God's faithful. And that's what the point of Hebrews 11 is, is let's look at their faithfulness. Let's see how faith impacted them so that we too can do the same. Faith isn't just about getting saved, Faith isn't just about being made righteous, though it certainly is not less than that. It begins with that, and then it continues. The Christian life is one every day lived by faith, lived with a deep confidence of this God who is, we read about in scriptures, that he is doing what he said he will do despite our circumstances that want to argue for the different, despite our feelings that want us to cause us to want to doubt, despite uh, our thoughts that go against us, all these things, what people's persecution, all that's going on in this world oftentimes will cause us to want to doubt. Faith says, no, God is still faithful, and it affects the way we live. Now, in this transition, we're going to see the whole reason he's wanting to lay out these examples of faith is because he's going to call us in chapter 12 and 13 at the end of the book. He's going to call us to live differently. He's moving on the offense now. He's been saying, hey, come on, don't doubt, don't have fears, don't shrink back. And now he's saying, in fact, move forward. In chapter 12, listen to what he says. After all this litany, we're going to spend weeks, even months, going over the, the lives of these biographies of these people who are of great faith. And at the end of chapter 11, we get to chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And listen to what he says. He says, Therefore, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, since all these awesome men and women of faith that we read about in our Old Testament scriptures, they are watching us. They're, they're looking down and there are witnesses of how we live. Therefore, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. He says, look, when I show you these people of faith, I'm not just saying yay for them. I'm saying, so let us do the same thing. Let us do, let, it, let us let faith transform our everyday lives in the midst of our every, what can seem to be mundane circumstances if you truly have faith in the faithfulness and the trustworthiness of God, it'll change how you play your sports. It'll change how you do your job. It'll change how you spend your money. It'll change 
every aspect of your life. And he's saying, so let us do that. So today we're going to see how faith impacted Abel's life. His first example we're going to look at today is how faith impacted Abel's life. He says, by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained a testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. So as the author has been doing all along, he has his Old Testament, his Hebrew Bible opened, and he's in chapter 4. And we can already tell from what he said in 11, 1, 2, and 3, with, with Ham going over it last week, we can tell where he started. He started in Genesis 1, 1, talking about God as the creator. And he's, so he's got his Bible open, he's got Jesus in mind, and he's writing this letter to explain the Old Testament in light of Jesus, and he's talking about faith, and he reads Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and he stops there and he says, anybody ever seen that? Anybody see God create everything out of nothing? No, you receive that by faith. You are convinced that there is a creator of the universe who didn't take material A and material B, mix it together to make a compound. He made everything out of nothing. He made everything we see out of things that we can't see. He's saying, you believe in that by faith. You are convinced of that. And so then he goes through until he gets to verse chapter 4. He's talking about Abel and talking about Cain. And so what is he seeing as he reads chapter 1 of Genesis, chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4? Let's think about that so we know where his mind is when he gets to the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. What we see in your scriptures, if you turn and read Genesis 1 through 4, the first thing we see is this picture of a sovereign creator of the universe who made everything out of nothing. And he is... The one in the scriptures that is pictured as he is the only one who is able to see what is good for humanity. When you read it, he made this and he saw this and he declared this was good. Second day, he made this, he saw and he declared this is good. And so we see a sovereign creator presented as the one who sees what is good and provides what is good. He is an uh, the great high God who gives humanity everything they need. And then he creates Adam and Eve. He nestles them in the garden and says, all you have to do is trust me. Enjoy this blessing of creation. Enjoy the gift of relationship. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Just trust me and enjoy me and my creation. Just don't go outside of me. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't, don't think that there's some other source of wisdom. Don't think that you can know better for yourself than I know what's good for you. Just trust me. And if you trust me, you will obey me. Tragically, they were tempted and they didn't trust God. God may be holding out on us. And so they went outside God's will. They disobeyed. And the story starts to see, we see the, all of creation, all of God's blessings unraveling. Relationship with each other, divided. They start blaming each other. Relationship with God, divided. They're kicked out of his presence over and over. We see the, the thorns and thistles instead of fruit being produced. Everything is contaminated by their sin. All should be lost at this point. God should do away with them and start over. But instead, what does he do? 
in Genesis 3.15, we see the nucleus of our earliest gospel promise in the scriptures. He says, I will send a redeemer. He will be the seed of the woman and he will crush the head of the serpent. He will defeat evil. That's the earliest gospel promise. God is promising an unseen reality that God is going to restore his people, restore all of creation through this promised one who will be a seed, a human of the woman. And so all the rest of the story is an unfolding of that promise, an unfolding of the unseen realities that where God says, I will one day create a new heavens and a new earth And all my people who trust in my seed will be gathered and he will have a kingdom on this earth with his people. All that was before the fall will be again. It's a whole unseen world that we buy into and participate in faith. And how does it happen? How is it accomplished? Through the Redeemer. In the Old Testament, he's called the seed of the woman in Genesis 3. He's called the seed of Abraham in Genesis 12. He's called the seed of of David in 2 Samuel 7. In the New Testament, we see his name is Jesus. So the whole story of the Bible is how God has made these promises to restore everyone and everything who trusts in Jesus. And he's saying, all that's in mind, when he comes to to Genesis chapter 4, and we read Genesis chapter 4, 1 through 12, as he writes about Cain and Abel, about which he speaks in Hebrews 11. So in Genesis 4, 1 through 12, listen to what he, he's reading in, uh, about Cain and Abel. Now, Adam, he's referring to Adam. Now, Adam had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time, Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel on on his part also brought of the firstlings of the flock and of the fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. And then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. But you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother. And it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? The answer there is yes. He said, well, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. So in this narrative, we see the woman whom God said, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And we see the idea is will be the one who restores and reconciles all of God's blessings. The, the first two seeds are born, Cain and Abel. 
Cain being the older brother, we learn that Cain was a farmer, Abel was a shepherd. Then we have this worship scene where they come to worship God with their offerings. And we see Cain and Abel both bring proper offerings. Some people aren't sure that they were the right offerings. I think it's very clear that they're presented as they both brought the first fruits of their labor. The farmer brought his first fruits. The shepherd brought his first fruits. And they lay them at the offering at the Lord. They bring them to offer to God an act of worship. And what happens? It says, the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. Notice the shift of attention. The attention is not on the offering. The attention is on the offerer, the one who brought the offering. They both brought their offerings of worship, and God refuses Cain's offering. But he says the reason is because he did not have regard for Cain, so he therefore did not have regard for his offering. But Abel, he had regard for Abel. He considered Abel acceptable, and so he enjoyed Abel's offering. It was an aroma to his glory. So the problem is not the offering. The problem is the person bringing it. Cain teaches a very valuable negative lesson. You can't live like a fool throughout the week and come into the church and offer God your worship as if it's going to be a bribe to cover everything I did this week. He says, get out of my face. If you're not acceptable to God, your worship is not acceptable to God. You can't appease God. You can't just give him a bribe. You can't just give him something to just overlook something, your sin. He says, you must be acceptable in my eyes to come and your worship be valuable to me. It doesn't matter how many sermons I preach. I can preach my whole lifetime. And when I get to the Lord, he'll say, if you weren't right with me, it did nothing. Be gone. I never knew you. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, Cain, and the scriptures are filled with these type of warnings of such hypocritical worship in Jeremiah, the prophet. God speaks through Jeremiah to the people of Israel. And he says to them the same thing that that we see Cain is doing. He says to them, will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and offer sacrifices to Baal, and walk, walk after other gods that you have not known, and then come up and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered? He's like, do you think that coming into the house of the Lord one day a week saves you from what you've been doing all week? That's not how it works. If you're not acceptable to God, if I'm not acceptable to God, then my worship here is meaningless. In in fact, it's condemning. You can't separate the worship from the worshiper. The offering doesn't make the man or woman. The man or woman makes the offering. And if the man or woman's not right with God, then the offering is of no value. And we see the problem was Cain and not the offering in his reaction. Look at the second part of verse 5. It says, so Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. And then we read about how God warned Cain, you better, be, you better not let this temptation to sin overcome you. But in eight, 
Second part of verse 8, And it came about when they were in the field, Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and he killed him. And now we see Cain's heart was bad. That's why God didn't take his, sacri- his offering. That's why God says, don't bring that up in here. And we see what his true colors when, when this happens. His, he turns his wrath against his brother and he kills him. Worship is the outflow of being approved by God. So how are we approved by God? What distinguishes between you and the next person, whether God accepts you or not? What distinguishes whether this whole life of preaching is worth anything to God or not? A whole life of ministry in the mission field. What, how do we be made right with God? He's been saying it all along. There's only one way, and that's believing what God has said about Jesus, that he will accept his blood as cover for your sin. That's it. That's the good news of the gospel. You can't earn your way to be right with God. You can't give enough money to be right with God. You can't go on enough mission trips to be made right with God. You can't serve enough. You can't preach enough. You can't sing enough. You can't do anything. No offering makes you right with God except for the offering that God made for you, and that's the offering of the blood of Jesus Christ. And then you have been granted access to the Holy of Holies. And once we get this concept, once we are convinced that it's true, once we are convinced that God is trustworthy and faithful and he's telling the truth and I'm made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ, then, as Paul says in Hebrews 12, 1, I lay my life down as a living sacrifice of worship to God. Everything is is an act of worship. Worship is in response to being saved by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. To the extent that you are convinced that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses you, you lay down your possessions in worship. You lay down your time in worship. You sacrifice vacation time. You sacrifice thousands of dollars to go on a mission trip to South Sudan. When people are saying, why are you doing that? You give up time and energy. You uproot your family and eight friends and you move to New Orleans to plant a church. You quit your job to go do this. You go to your workplace and you talk about Jesus and you live with integrity. You don't compromise. You don't trim on the edges. You don't cheat. You don't lie because you get it. My life is a worship to God because he has saved me through the blood of Jesus. That's what he's saying here. If you get the unseen realities that God has said about Jesus and what he's doing for you in Jesus, what he's doing for all of creation in Jesus, it radically transforms everything in your life. So he's saying it transformed Abel. Abel got it right. Abel didn't come to God saying, hey, I hope this buys me something with you, God. Or, hey, I hope this covers up my sin to pass. Abel is saying, praise God that the seed of the woman will be my redeemer. Here's my first fruits. And it was an aroma of glory to God. So the writer of Hebrews is challenging us. He's saying, do you really know what God is doing in this world? Do you really believe, are you really convinced 
that Jesus is the Son of God, as Hebrews 1.1 says? Are you really certain that he came to die on the cross to be the sacrifice for your sins? Do you really believe that he died, was buried, and he rose again? Are you convinced that he ascended to the right hand of the Father and he's sitting there, as we have seen in Hebrews, on the edge of his seat, waiting to return to get vengeance on his enemies and to bring blessings to his people? Are you really convinced in your heart of hearts that he is coming back and going to establish an earth with the absence of any effects of sin and he's going to gather his people and there will be a kingdom of God on this earth? Are you convinced of these things? If you are, then you understand he deserves everything that you have. And it's a sacrifice of praise. Is that why you're here today? Or are you here to give God a little something, something for what happened this week? Because that's not how it works. God says, get out of my face. That's insulting. You think that's going to buy you something with me? You come in here because I've given you everything you have, and you are mine. It's not a long passage, but it's a powerful point. Is your offering acceptable to God today? Are you here in response, in gratitude to the salvation that he's given you in Christ? Are you doing things out of gratitude for his grace and mercy and salvation that you didn't deserve, that none of us deserved? Has the gospel so impacted your heart that it is changing your priorities? It's changing your thoughts. It's changing your language. It's changing your outlook. It's changing your perspective. The Christian life is not just a worship service on Sundays. It's a life dedicated to the glory of God because you have been convinced of the unseen realities of the scriptures. Let's pray together. Father God, we praise you for this very short verse that is so penetrating and so powerful that it's life-changing. I thank you, Lord, that when you give us faith, faith to believe, to be convinced, to be certain of your trustworthiness, your faithfulness to do all that you said you are doing and have done in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is through Jesus that you reconcile sinners to yourself. It is through Jesus that you bring restoration to relationships. It is through Jesus 
that you will one day restore all of creation to its beauty and splendor as you designed and created it to be. It is through Jesus that you will gather your people and create a worldwide kingdom of worshipers who fill this earth with your glory. It is through Jesus that you give us hope. It is through Jesus that we are sure assured of and convinced of the unseen realities will take place despite the difficulties, the persecution, the struggles, the the hardships. And as we are convinced that you are trustworthy and faithful to do everything that you have promised to do through Jesus, you will make us a people who sacrifice like these saints that we read about of old. You will make us a people who have courage and boldness in our workplace like these people that we read about in your scriptures. You will make us a people who consider ourselves not our own, but your possession to do what you will with us. As we get this, this is why people head to South Sudan. This is why people go to Nicaragua. This is why families move to New Orleans. This is why people uproot their families to serve you, Lord. Only as we are convinced of the things that you have shown us about yourself, about your son, about your purposes, in and through Jesus Christ. I pray you convict our heart of the truths presented in Scripture. I pray that the gospel is powerful and transforms us and makes us a people on mission for your glory. I thank you for the evidences of it in our church where people are adopting children from other countries and other races. People are laying their lives down at your feet because they know that it's all yours. May it be more, Lord. Make it happen more and more. Thank you for your goodness. I pray that there's anyone here this morning, and I know there's got to be several who are convicted that they need to consider deeply and seriously the claims of Christianity and stop playing games Stop giving you two bits on one day a week and thinking that that does them good and to say, here I am. I am all in. No matter how far we've gone, no matter how many times we've run, Lord, we thank you that you are gracious, that we can come just as we are. We don't have to clean ourselves up this morning. We come to you just as we are and you will accept us if we come resting and trusting, confident only in the blood of Jesus Christ. Bring conviction during this song, Lord. Bring glory to yourself.